Would you open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12? Um, we are going to broadcast it this week, so you don't have to do it the old-fashioned way on your phone. But uh, I'm reading it from the Message Bible. Now, that is not a translation. That is an interpretation. Okay, that's different. Um, but I've read it to you the last week's from the NIV translation. But I wanted to read it from this passage. Uh, as long as you understand that, um, I don't know what's happening here. Like my pack had beans for breakfast or something. But, um, <laughs> but I'm going to read this from... Uh, from the message version, uh, because it just, I think that Peterson interprets a few things in here really beautifully. And so I'm just going to read it, all eight verses of it. So here is what I want you to do. God helping you, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you. Quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, see if this doesn't sound like Twitter, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. I'm speaking to you out of deep gratitude for all that God has given me, and especially as I have responsibilities in relation to you. Living then as every one of you does in pure grace, it's important that you not misinterpret yourself as people who are bringing this goodness to God. No, he brings all of it to you. And what we talked about last week about your identity that is something that you discover, not something that you choose. Your identity is not something you achieve, it's something you receive, and it's a whole different weight on you when it's that. The only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what he does for us, not by what we are and what we do for him. In verse four, in this way we are like the various parts of a human body, each part getting its meaning from the body as a whole, not the other way around. And isn't that such a perfect image of like That's our meaning and our purpose comes from figuring out what part of the body of Christ as a whole that we are. The body we're talking about is Christ's body of chosen people. Each of us finds a meaning and function as part of his body. But as a chopped off finger or cut off toe, we wouldn't amount to much. Do we have it? You can be real honest, we're, we're safe. Anybody in here ever chop your finger off? We have a whole room of people with all their fingers, toes, anyone? You clearly didn't grow up like near a combine or an auger or a, I grew up in Nebraska and let me just shoot you real straight. Every one of us knew somebody that had lost something in an auger or a PTO or something like, like my seventh grade year. Uh, no, 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 it was eighth or ninth. Anyway, Mr. Laniger was our shop teacher, chopped his finger off in the plane and wood shop like while we were there, right? And you can't unsee that for the first time, like as a kid, like just spurting blood out. But listen, no, that's disgusting. But it is 11 o'clock, so this is your fault for being here. But listen, but as a chopped off finger or toe, we wouldn't amount to much, would we? Because <laughs> it's true, once that finger's gone, it's gone. Like you can make a necklace out of it or whatever, but it ain't, you know, it is of no value. Put it in a jar on the mantle, but we find ourselves fashioned into all these excellently formed and marvelously functioning parts in Christ's body. Let's just go ahead and be what we were made to be without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something that we're not. Amen. Verse six, 
If you preach, just preach. God's message and nothing else. If you help, just help. Don't take over. If you teach, stick to your teaching. If you encourage, uh, if you give encouraging guidance, be careful that you don't get bossy. If you are put in charge, don't manipulate. If you're called to give aid to people in distress, keep your eyes open and be quick to respond. If you work with the disadvantaged, don't let yourself get irritated with them or depressed by them. Keep a smile on your face. Yeah, we can just go home on that, right? But we're not, so let's pray. (laughs) Jesus, I ask for your word to be the light and the lamp that you promised that it would be. And even in just this interpretation of Romans 12, there's so much depth and meaning. And I just ask that you would uh, make that alive and real to us today. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I I just got back from Houston, Texas Friday night. I hadn't flown domestically in so long. Like, it was kind of awesome. I don't know about you, David, but like, we don't have to take a passport or check a bag. It was like, what's everybody complaining about? This is awesome. Um, I went there for uh, the memorial service for Dr. John Bassanio, who was with us uh, in his last few months of his life. He was part of our church fellowship. Uh, and by the way, no pressure or anything. Like, I'm not planning on going anywhere. But this is pretty cool. Like, he got him a 200-voice or- uh, choir and a full orchestra and a banjo. Man, dude pulled out a banjo. So I'm just saying, if something happens to me this week, just know. <laughs> maybe, maybe a string section. Like, I won't ask for a mushroom. But it was pretty cool. And don't let those empty seats fool you. That's a 4,000-seat auditorium. There were 2,000 people in there that came to honor uh, John's life. And what a privilege it was that we got to be a part of the last few months of, of John's life. Uh, he spoke his last sermon here on Memorial Day weekend. And uh, here's what I loved about this. First, I loved the fact that they served fried chicken and bluebell ice cream at the reception. So let's just get that out on the table. It was not keto, but it was glorious. <laughs> but everybody that shared or spoke or even sang and said something about him all used the same word to describe John. He was so encouraging. That guy encouraged me. He was so encouraged over and over and over again. And what I remember from him being here was he'd pull in like on his little walker, you know, the one that came with its own chair um, and a cup holder, he had the whole thing. So he would roll out of the service. First of all, he'd get here every Sunday on time, uh, driving his own car, had no business driving, but he didn't want to be late to church. So he's here anyway. And he'd park his little uh, walker car right outside my office door so he, because he knew he's a pastor, he knew that's where I'd be going at some point to encourage me. That was it. That dude was so encouraging. Like it was literally, he would say, Darren, this, that was the best sermon I've ever heard. Now here's the thing. I know that's not even true. <laughs> but I believed it. And I was like, oh, I'm encouraged. I'll, I could survive till next week now. Like it was like this boost of encouragement. That's what this guy did. He, when he spoke that day, you know, in the moments when he was really dialing into the lucidity that he was encouraging to us as a church family. Remember what he said, how awesome this church is and all this, and what do you say to me? And don't mess up. Don't mess it up. God is doing big things here. Don't mess it up. That was his encouragement. It was his, I believe, his Romans 12 spiritual gift that he spent an entire life giving that gift. And at the end of his life, just a couple months ago, he sat in a room with his uh, son-in-law, Kurt Dodd, who's a pastor in Omaha, and he told Kurt, like, I don't know if I'm gonna have six months, six weeks, six days, six minutes, but whatever I have, I, wanna, I want my life to be useful for God. And I left that day from that little 
ceremony, that celebration, thinking, I want to be like John. Not like I want to be like him and be encouragement, because that's not my spiritual gift. But what I want to be like John is to say, whatever it is, whether I have six years, 60 years, six months, six weeks, six minutes, that my life is useful for him. Because what he was really doing was what we've been trying to say in three sermons. He just offered his life as a living sacrifice and let the chips fall where they may. He just said, I want to be all of you. And then he just was who God had created him to be. And over decades of ministry, he kept delivering that gift over and over and over and over again. Surrounded himself with other people that had the other spiritual gifts. Because let me tell you what, you don't build a building like that. Now, by the way, just so you know, if you're visiting here, we have literally no vision for that at all. Like we, we're quite happy with small. Go big on small is what we're all about. But you got to have somebody with the gift of administration to figure that stuff out. You know, you got to have an Eric Pogue that can build stuff if you're going to build something. He let those people be who they were, falling into this Romans 12 list, and big things happen for the kingdom. So that's today. Like the first week, if you were here, you might remember that we just talked about what these gifts even are. And I've been around the church for a long time. I always get confused around spiritual gifts. When I thought of spiritual gifts, I thought 1 Corinthians 12. I thought we were gonna cast something out of someone. I thought someone's gonna take a lap. I thought, you know, that, that was, spiritual gifts were 1 Corinthians 12. Now that is a list and it does correspond with the Holy Spirit. There is a gift and that's a whole other sermon series at some point. That's not the one we're doing today. There's this list in Ephesians 4 that he says Jesus gave these gifts that has to do with the son. It's the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the shepherd, and the teacher. There's that list, but the list that we are on, the the promise, the power of the seven, are these supernaturally natural gifts that he's put inside of each one of us that only come into their full meaning and their full context and their full power and ability when they're working together side by side with others, just like a hand. So we decided that we we're defining what they were. And then last week we talked a little bit about what it even means to be, to be like identify, like what is it? Because he says we get our meaning from this. That was Eugene's uh, interpretation of that. But it is true. We get our meaning and our purpose by what he created us to be. And next week I want to share with you what it means, like where you take them to. Because that's important. Hey, just because I'm gifted, now what do I do with it? Like, where do I deliver this gift? We're going to get to that. But for this week, what I want to talk about is what it means to develop the gift inside of you. Paul referred to it in 1 Timothy uh, 2. I'm off, uh, I'm off the grid at this point. In, in 1 Timothy 5, um, 1, whatever it is. I got it right the first two services, and I'm telling you, two out of three ain't bad. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift that put, uh, got put inside of you that was on by the laying on of hands. There's a whole theology conversation we could have what that means. But the, what it does mean for sure is that there was a gift inside of Timothy that was given to him, not that he chose, that it was received, not achieved. But now that it's in there, he has this job to fan it into flame. There's a thing that he has to do to develop it and what is inside of him. That's his responsibility for it. And he says the way I believe this is, it's just right in context with it. For the spirit of God gave us, uh, does not make us timid. You might know the King James version for God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Those are things that happen that are part of the ingredients that allow us to remove the fear out of the way that allow us to fan that gift into flame. The gift that you have inside of you is going to require you to do some work on it, to find it. Now, we lo- I love the power and the love part. Like, we focus a lot on that. Every sermon I've ever heard and maybe even given really focused on the power and the love. But he also says, and of a sound mind. And you don't hear a lot about that these days. 
And by the way, mind isn't just your head. The idea, the, the Hebrew and the Greek idea of mind was like this whole soul of who you are, okay? That's what he's talking about. So when we go back to Romans chapter 12, he says that we are transformed how? Renewing of our minds. He gives us a little bit of a clue in what this looks like when we, as far as working on it and developing it, when he starts talking about these gifts individually, Paul does. When he says that if your gift is prophecy, then prophesy. Just do that. Stay in your lane. If, and what we've talked about that gift means is somebody who is like the visionary person, the woman who, I see this and I know what it's supposed to be. They, they can just see something that no one else sees. The most obvious one for us is in our little church family is Mike Coop at Place of Hope in Columbia, Tennessee. He moved into Columbia 20 years ago to an old, abandoned, dumpy nursing home that literally abandoned, abandoned. Ain't nobody been in there for a while. No air conditioning, no heat. And he saw, a, this is perfect. We'll start with what we have and we're gonna do Christ-centered drug alcohol rehabilitation. In those early days, he just get into, he called it the druggy buggy. It was this van that uh, he couldn't even leave him behind because he was the only guy. So he had to take everybody with him to the store. And that was 20 years ago. But you know, as that organization, as God's vision grew for that is what was happening, Mike had to stop controlling everything and let go of some stuff. Because his gift of, I can see this, the, t the proclivity is now to try to control it all. Get your hands in everything. You might know them as a micromanager. And he's saying here, that if that's, your, if that's your, your, uh, your unhealthy part of you, this broken part of you that wants to control, you gotta let that go. And he goes on to say, if, you're, if your gift is teaching, let him teach. And which, so for me, that's my thing. And I didn't wanna be a teacher. I wanted to be T.D. Jakes. Like, I swear to you that, that I would've been perfectly happy, right? You know what I'm saying? The dude's ability to spin a phrase, to break out the hanky and inspire the masses, I ain't got it. So I need to stay in my lane. When we first started the Bible study years and years ago, uh, it was for college kids. It was college young professionals, which basically was a lot of bass players, Starbucks baristas, and the air dwells living around in like the county who, you know. And we started it, there was a church that wanted us to do this, and so I, I thought, I could, I, mean, I could do that, it's Tuesday nights, and so I just started like the three Ds of dating kind of sermons, because like, I thought that was what college kids wanted. Trouble was, I wasn't very good at it. And then one night, I showed up, and I had been, I don't know, managing some band in a ditch somewhere in some city in America, and I had literally had no, I had not prepared at all. So I showed up that night thinking, what am I going to say? There's going to be like 20 people here. They're ready for me to say something. And so I just opened the Bible to the book of Acts chapter one, which is where I had been studying that week anyway, and just shared what I learned that week. And they went, whoa, that was awesome. We should do that again. So the next week we opened to Acts chapter two. I thought I'd invented expository preaching. Like I didn't know. <laughs> and I just learned something, stumbled into it. Just if you're a teacher, just teach. In the words of the place I grew up in, just know your role, shut your hole, just do your thing, be, be in your deal. He says, if, if you are administrator, if you lead, do it diligently. In other words, don't do it to, man, to manipulate, to try to control things. Like, especially if you've got this gift of service, one of the things that's hard is that you get into that and other people aren't working as hard as you are. Now, in fairness, it's because we honestly didn't see. 
Like, my wife and I, in our, early in our marriage, like, she would be like, did you not see? Like, I can be so unobservant. Like, I swear to you that I did not see the candy wrapper. I didn't realize there were dust bunnies. I didn't, I didn't even see it. Right, Kenneth? Solidarity. The thing is, is that, but the gift of service people, you see it and you don't understand why. So the, the idea is, he's saying is, like, like just do it diligently. Not, out of, but here's the thing, out of the, the part of pain in your heart that it might be covering up a little bit, you might lash out at them a little bit. There might be something that's coming, an unhealthy part of you in it. If you do uh, show mercy, do it cheerfully. Man, if you're somebody who's got that gift, what you know is that you take on that weight yourself and it's so hard because you've seen the pain that nobody else saw. And so when he says to do it cheerfully, there's a, t- there's a key in there that says to me, A, that means I could do it uncheerfully. And it also means that whatever gift I have, that I could be doing it and delivering it in a way that's wrong, that's unhealthy and harmful to me. So what we want to talk about today is what it looks like to develop, to fan that gift into flame. And by the way, developing, I live in a neighborhood that's being developed. You know what that means? There's a lot of digging. There's a lot of cutting. There's a lot of pushing to the side. There's a lot of leveling off of things. Developing can be a painful process, but at the end of it, something good and glorious can happen. And I believe what we see here in Romans 12 is this idea that I, these gifts that he's been given, that I can deliver them, but I need to develop them first and fan them into flame. And he's going to give us something to stop something to start, and someone who stays. Those are the three things that I see right here, and we'll get into next week what it looks like, where we deliver them. But when he says something to stop, it's right there in the first couple of verses. Don't conform any long to the pattern of this world. The pattern of this world, it's, it means many things. I read all kinds of commentaries, and, and it does mean culture. It certainly can't mean less than that, but I think it means more than that. The pattern of this world. The pattern that you have been following in your life and I follow in my life that I started picking up when I was super little. If any of you guys got little babies in here, you know that even from the earliest age that all they want from their parents, from those who love them, is to attach to them, to be, to love, to be loved and to be accepted. And they learn from the earliest age what it takes to get your love, to perform for them. I did it, you did it. And so what happens is as we begin to get older, the patterns that I picked up as a child begin to just sort of flow into my life as an adult. When I, uh, my wife isn't in here, so I I guess I can tell on myself without her here. My wife and I have been married 23 years, most of them happy. When I say that she's been married to five men in her marriage and all of them were me, (laughs) like it's true. Like this journey that I have been on of no longer conforming to the pattern of this world, one of the things that we've worked through over the years is that my proclivity is when things start getting a little on the edge, get a little uncomfortable, I'll shut down. I just stop talking. And I'll, if you ask me in that moment why I did that, I would have said, well, I didn't want to say something I regret. Or worse than, you know, my problems aren't that important. I just really want to make sure that her problems are, which sounds so noble, doesn't it? It's so manipulative, so bad. But that's what I would have said to you. What I would not have said was that this was me operating out of implicit memory. This is what a clinical psychologist would call your behavior in a moment when you don't even know why you're doing it. You know implicit memory if you've learned how to ride a bike. What do they say? It's like, oh, there's my wife. It's like riding a bike... Hi, Vanna. Um, <laughs> it's like riding a bike because you've already, you know how to do that. You can just do it without even thinking. When Zach plays the 
keys up here. He's just doing it out of implicit memory. But it's not just a physical behavior. It's your behavior in the moment when something gets real uncomfortable or real on edge. The way that you are acting is from an implicit memory. So I would have said to you that it's because I didn't want to say something I regret or because I, my needs aren't that important and I want to make sure that she's happy. What I wouldn't have said that it was when I was a kid in eight, nine years old that my dad had been addicted to prescription medication, was in the hospital. My mother was having kidney surgery. And by then, like today they just, I mean, Tammy, you're a nurse. Did they just stick a straw in and suck the, the, the stone out now? Like it's not, in the old days they used to have to cut you open and reach in and pull it out and put it back in. And so, yeah, so she was in the hospital hospital. And in the middle of all that, my brother gets hit by a car, smashes his leg, is in the hospital in traction in a body cast and I'm eight years old, so what did I learn in that moment is that my needs aren't that important because there's bigger problems in the world. By the way, my mom never said that. Kids are great observers, terrible interpreters. The implicit memory that I go with now, the pattern of this world that I have been conforming to says that my needs are not important, that other people's, there's got bigger problems in the world, Big boys don't cry. Whatever the message is, that's the pattern of this world that I have been forming my life after. You have one too. You have one. I was talking in a counseling session a while back and I asked permission to share it one day. Um, and the, the husband, when he gets, when they got into it, when it started getting on edge and they got in a fight, that he would get in the car and drive away and not answer his wife's calls. Now, if you're a young couple, I'm gonna give you a little heads up. That's stupid. Don't do that. That is not how you communicate. He said, I didn't want to say something I regret. It makes me uncomfortable when she's angry. And so he would get in the car and he would leave. That's what he would tell you. What he wouldn't tell you was that when he was a kid, when his dad was an alcoholic, his dad decided, I'm going to be at sober now and I'm going to white knuckle this thing. I'm not going to go through treatment. I'm going to, so he's going to come home angry every night, abusive and yelling. And when he saw that happening, he would get in his bicycle and he would leave because that's the only way to survive that childhood. And by the time he was 16 and he graduated high school early, he got in the car and he left and got as far away from as he could. He was, it was what he learned as a child to survive that childhood. That was the pattern of this world that is now helping him to move through this life. And that is what we have to stop conforming to. And the only way to know that is, to stop conforming to it is to actually recognize that you have it. What a perfect trap that Satan would set for us. To just literally move through this life without even realizing I'm doing these patterns. Why am I doing the things I'm doing? To stop conforming, and this is going to sound, this actually, I believe this would be a TDJ statement right here. If you don't reveal it, you can't heal it. Okay? So you have to know what it is before God can move into healing and into it. So you stop conforming to the pattern of this world and you start renewing your mind. That's how you're going to be transformed, is not by just stopping this bad behavior, but by literally by starting this renewal of your mind. That is not, it is, again, it can't mean less than this, but it sure means more than that. It doesn't mean just memorizing a bunch of scripture. The word of God is important, it's powerful. It says it divides between the soul and the spirit. There is a tool of counseling. But renewing your mind, I mean, look, Place of Hope is full of people who know that drugs and alcohol are bad for them. They know it, you don't have to tell them. The information wasn't enough. They needed some transitioning, some renewal of their mind. And that verb, by the way, of renewing your mind is this sort of ongoing. It's not like I flip on the light switch and my light is removed. It's not that kind of a verb. 
It's the kind of verb like, I am getting to North Dakota by the driving of my car. God only knows why you'd want to go there. But if you did, it's my wife's motherland. (laughs) That's why we would go there, but there's nobody there anymore. She's here. It takes a long time to get to North Dakota. And the only way I get there is by the driving of my car. The only way to get to transformation is by the renewing, by the driving, by the renewing of your mind. The more your mind is renewed, the more your life is transformed. The more I drive to North Dakota, the closer I'm getting to it. Does this make sense to you? It is about a new experience with a different response. So there is information in the word of God and the power of prayer. Absolutely. And then it's this, I'm going to start having these experiences that are around it. Cause you know what happened when I finally just got the courage to tell my wife what I really thought about something or what really mattered to me? Nothing. She didn't run away. She didn't get mad. She stayed. It was a brand new experience around an old wound, right? It was like, Oh, this is the idea that I'm, and here's the thing. Satan would want me to keep in this place because I don't risk this because I'm trying to be safe. I'm trying to be covered. I'm trying to be safe and protected. And he's, but once I started taking those risks and look, I'm not there. Like, I, just so you know, I, you know what a pastor is? I'm in the same hospital y'all are in. I need the same physician you guys need. I can't fix your problems. I got enough of my own. Like I'm, Maybe I've been in the hospital a little bit longer. Maybe I know the nurses that are nice and are not and the orderlies and what to avoid in the cafeteria. Like that's probably what a good description of a pastor. But I need the same healer you need. And I just want to point you to Jesus in that. And part of what he's promising here is that, you, look, you can grow old and he's going to love you just as much if you don't do the work around renewing your mind. He doesn't love you any less but he's promised you that, wow, you could actually step into this renewed mind, this idea that it's not just new information, it's this whole experience with you. And as you begin to renew your mind, your life begins to be transformed. You're getting this new information, but you're also getting a new experience and a different reaction. You realize, oh, okay, this was okay. Like I, I, when I sit in this, we call it the circle of safety every Tuesday morning with Jeff Schulte and some of my friends that we sit and we we sit and we're honest with each other and the last thing we say at the end of that meeting is keep coming back. Because what we need in our soul and our hearts is to know that you can see me and I can see you and you're not going to leave. Because that's really the fear of all of it. And by the way, in some situations, that's real and it's true and it's why you can't just be vulnerable to just anybody. Because not everybody is trustworthy of that kind of information. You have to find your circle of safety to be able to be that kind of real with them, to be able to speak the truth with them. But I want to tell you this, that whatever you find out from the people around you, because some of you, even in your own marriage right now, in your own relationship, you're not there yet with them. They, they, you can't trust them yet with that kind of information. But there is one who stays. Something to stop, something to start. And there's one who stays, because ultimately the only eyes in the universe that matter Jesus. And it's implied in here. It's not explicit, but it's implicit because when he says, I'm the head, the head ain't going anywhere. The head is sticking around for the ups and for the downs of life. And we saw this in Peter. I mean, Peter, if there's like a top three idiots in the Bible, he's got to be top three, right? I mean, for sure top five, but I mean, Judas, you know, number one, but you know, he's like, he rounds out and here's Peter on a couple days after, I mean, Jesus is resurrected now and Peter has remembered 
All we know from Peter is he blew it, right? He swore, I'll stand with you to the end. And if you've been to Israel, you know that where he denied Christ, he was right, you could hear him from there. It wasn't like some faraway place on the back nine. It was on the other side of the wall. Jesus might've even heard it. But here's what we don't know. We don't know if any of the other disciples heard it. We don't know if they know, not at this point. What we do know is that Peter would have felt an enormous amount of shame and regret. That's what I would have felt. I did it again. And so Peter did what a lot of us do. He went right back to his old patterns of behavior, went to his old life, went right back on the boat, went right back on the sea. And it says that Jesus, in John chapter 21, went looking for him. And what did Jesus do? Listen, we, we, this is pretty amazing. He sets up a fire on the beach and he starts cooking breakfast. And you know the theology of it. The theology is, is he says, do you love me? And Peter says, I do. And you know, if you've been around the word at all, you know that he's asking him, do you agape love me? And Peter's saying, I, but I friend love you. And he says it over and it hurts him in his heart. That's all good and it's all important. But look, think about what he's doing here. The last time Peter was with Jesus eating food, there was a fire. Trigger warning, Peter, this was bad news. You blew it the last time this happened. Like it would have viscerally brought something up. Jesus brought him right back into the same experience and gave him a, I'm not leaving I'm staying here, Peter. And if you're Peter, you can't go lead the church that Jesus wants you to lead if you're buried in shame. And Jesus didn't, he didn't take him to the woodshed. He didn't even just take him to the side and say, hey, Peter, we're cool. It was in front of his friends and said, Peter, I love you. I'm not going anywhere. Feed my sheep. Because the only way that that shame was going to be extinguished was not in some corner somewhere. It was in a circle of safety in the men that he loved and that they didn't leave him. Jesus, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. You can bring all of it to me. The thing about vulnerability, I mean, I appreciate what Brene Brown has done and it's really some beautiful work around even what it means to be vulnerable with each other, that the human brain needs another human brain to be vulnerable with each other. But vulnerability isn't just a moment that you experience or a thing that you muster the courage up for. It's what you are. You're vulnerable. You're a human. And your whole life has become about posturing and pretending that you're not. So being able to just say, Jesus, look, I am vulnerable. I am human. And what does he say? God says, oh, but I remember that you're dust. I have mercy on you. I'm not leaving you. I'm not forsaking you. I'm going to stay. And that's the kind of work that renewing your mind takes. And that's where transformation is born out of. We have people in this church that do amazing work. Chris and Lisa Vroman do this training called journey training, and they take you on an existential journey to, the, to, to your soul. We're actually going to start a series in September called Oh My Soul, specifically about that we've a lot of power, a lot of love, and we got all that, and we're so grateful for it, but a sound mind is what he's offered us. I try to do something every year, an intensive of some kind, Brian's sitting in here. We've, we both worked with a guy named Chip Dodd, and Chip, I mean, he wrung me out like a chamois. Just <laughs> going to the soul to find the work and allowing Jesus to bring the healing to it. And there are other people in this community, Chris and Lisa Roman being one, Refuge Foundation. If that's you and you need to, and you would like to start doing some of that kind of work, we could introduce you to some people. What I would encourage you to not do is nothing. That's not the right answer. 
For some of you, maybe this week would be a good chance to read a book. Maybe just start a book. There's a book by a guy named Kurt Thompson who I could not recommend more highly. He wrote a book called The Soul of Shame and he wrote a book called The Anatomy of the Soul. Both of them are brilliant because he talks about the work that's happening in neuroplasticity right now is unbelievable. And all it's doing is pointing back to Romans 12 that this is how your life is gonna be transformed. That when you were a kid, that the things that happened, because what happened in your brain when you were a kid, like when it rained this week and you start to see, especially on a, on, a, on a hill where there's no grass, the water begins to dig channels in the path of least resistance. So all the rain that comes after that starts to flow through those channels. What neuroplasticity has proved is that things that have happened in your life, trauma, things that have happened in your childhood, things that happened, for those of you that have served our military, you've seen things, they call it PTSD, but what's happened is your brain has been rewired. There's been new channels formed. So now when you go there, we call it implicit memory, but what it's called is going home. When you sit at a stoplight and that guy in front of you is reading his iPhone and, not, and you honk and you get angry, you're not angry at him, you went home. There's something deeper inside that caused that to rise up. And the idea of renewing your mind, again, Paul didn't understand any of this science, but the Holy Spirit did. And the Holy Spirit says that, hey, you can actually transform yourself by renewing your mind. It's not gonna be something you do overnight. It's not a flip a switch that you flip. It's a daily journey and a daily process of transforming by renewing your mind. I want that for you. I've experienced so much of it. I have so much more to experience, but there's so much freedom in it. There's freedom even for me to stand up here and say, you know what, this Christian thing is kind of hard. Like, I grew up in a world where we weren't allowed to say that because what I knew was that the pastor was kicking butt and taking names and the devil was under his feet and everything was going awesome and I'm thinking, well, I pretty much suck at this then. That's not how my day went. I don't know about yours. <laughs> but I didn't feel safe to be vulnerable there and I want us to have this environment here where we can say, you know what, this week didn't go so great for me. Not just to wallow in it, but to move out of it, if that makes sense. Stand to your feet, I know it's late. Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Charlie, that's when you drive to Michigan, 1,200 miles to be with a group of men. And by the way, there's a reason why men are different, why I think it's important that we separate this out. The human brain, it's been proved, the female brain responds to trauma differently than the male brain does, okay? The male brain, we go into all the things that control impulse, and we do. That's why you see guys doing really stupid things. The females, it's more from an emotional side. It's literally, the, the science is pretty much settled on it. We need each other and we need to be with men and women need to be with women working together around this stuff. That's why you drove to Michigan because you were willing to do the work. And I say that because not all of us are willing to do the work. I understand that it's expensive. There's places in town you could work with and talk to that can help you through this stuff on a sliding scale. But for most, it's actually not the money. It's that I don't think I'm worth the time. In your very own thing, I'm not, I've, there's other people whose problems are bigger than mine whatever lie that is lodged in your heart and say, you won't even do the work because you don't think you're worth it. And I want to tell you today that from the Holy Spirit, you are worth it to take the first step. It's a long way to North Dakota, but one drive at a time, you'll get there. Heavenly Father, thank you for your promise. And thank you that your word is so powerful that it doesn't just deal with the love and the power, but with our minds, with our lives, with our souls of who we are, That's so awesome. We're so grateful for the finished work of the cross. We're so grateful that you love us anyway. And that today we can stand here before you as we are vulnerable before you, exposed. But maybe today, Lord, we could stand like the woman who was caught in an adultery, not ashamed. Not ashamed. In Jesus' 
name we pray. Amen. Guys, I love you. I know that more than that, God loves you. And uh, yeah, we love you.